Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. Welcome to episode 54 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep, and welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. So in this episode, we're going to talk about healthcare workers. We're not quite yet at the finished product of how to get healthcare workers to be sleeping well and coping with shifts, but there's been a lot of work going on, uh, particularly in Melbourne in the last couple of years, about understanding the challenges of sleep in healthcare workers and beginning to develop an approach to improve things. So we'll drill down on that a little later with Julia Stone from Monash University. So what's been happening for you this month, Moira? Well, I think, we, I guess, because of the um, the COVID-19 pandemic, it, it's been a sort of unprecedented busy time, both uh, clinically but also with the, the media. There's been a really a great amount of interest in talking about sleep, disrupted sleep, and particularly vivid dreams. I'm sure you must have had some um, requests for comments on that as well. Yeah, corona dreams. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about all that? My sort of hypothesis is... Um, you know, I really like the Alan Hobson model of this AIM, so M memory monoamines. The higher monoamine drive is, the more you recall your dreams. Mm. So it is a time when we've got more circulating adrenaline monoamines because there's that uncertainty and change. And so you'd expect dreams will be more recollection, a bit more vivid. Anyway, that's my theory. Yeah, yeah. And also I think that I also think that people are just sleeping longer and more likely to be having more REM because uh, not having the commute and not getting up early for school, I find that that's sort of that part of a, like a rebound, REM rebound sort of phenomenon that we have on sort of the start of annual leave usually when you get to sleep a bit more and think, oh, gee, I remember my dreams for the first time in ages. Yeah, because sleep's definitely different for people. You know, our daytime activities are very different, mm-hmm. so sleep is understandably different as well. Yeah. And you've been busy, Moira, and you've got some webinars coming up as well. Yeah, I've done so many webinars. I've done sort of unprecedented amounts of webinars. And, yes, yeah, certainly, um, well, the ASA have got a new webinar series, which is fantastic. It's free for members and it's $45 for non-members, kicking off on May 27th with Elise McGlashan. Uh, and next month uh, I'm doing the one with, um, about mid-June talking about hypersomnia um, with Simon Frankel. And in this case, uh, narcolepsy, talking about uh, a lovely woman with narcolepsy who's been very generous with her time over the years. In fact, she was on our podcast many years ago talking about her yeah. lived experience with narcolepsy. So Jackie will be joining us for that webinar too. So, yeah, it's been it's been really busy. I'm really happy to do that. It's a, uh, I've got one next week too, another ASA one based on WA group, just talking about our own, how we're all going as practitioners with our, with our sleep ourselves and how to promote better sleep in our, our patients, our clients. So I'm looking forward to that one. And you're trying to master Twitter. So welcome to Twitter, Laura. Thank you. Yes, and listeners, you can follow me. I don't know. I mean, even though I've been on Twitter, I've had a Twitter handle for years. I just haven't had the uh, – I don't know what it is. I just haven't been very brave. I haven't had the inclination. And sometimes just the time, I didn't, I didn't want to do it until I could do it well. But I have – tweeted for the first time in the last couple of weeks and I'm a bit nervous about it but I'm happy to I really want to engage with as many people as possible so I don't are you meant to have followers is that is it is it good to build up your how many followers you have so or doesn't really matter it's about the quality, the quality. of your followers Laura. 
It doesn't have to be a big group. A small, well-curated group is often. But listeners, feel free to um, follow me. It's, if, so what's your, come on, you're going to promote what's your Twitter handle? Oh, at, just at Moira Younger, which I didn't even know anything about doing that years ago. I should have probably had something about sleep in the title, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, at the moment, it's just at Moira Younger. Simple as that. Okay. We'll follow you on Twitter. <laughs> So the theme for this month's podcast is sleep in healthcare workers. And it's a really important topic because healthcare is a fatigue-sensitive industry. And funnily enough, it's one of the least regulated fatigue-sensitive industries. You know, it's always been a bit mysterious to me that once I graduated as a specialist uh, medical practitioner, there was no one saying to me, well, you can't work more than X hours per week. If I wanted to work, I I could work, yet I'm as susceptible to fatigue and the effects of not getting enough sleep as everybody else. You know, we're human after all. And Moira, you know, you've certainly done your time as a nurse in your day. How did you go with shift work? Um, well, yeah, I did a lot of shift work, obviously, as a nurse and then as a sleep technologist for, for many, many years. It's staying, literally, you know, staying up all night. And I think back then I was in my 20s and it was – uh, it was fine, you know, like it was tough, you know, but, but you're so, you, know, you would respond, you'd sleep in and on your days off, you'd recover pretty quickly. Didn't have the, you know, responsibilities of family, et cetera, et cetera. But pro- probably, I mean, it's probably fair to say, I think it's a very big factor in why I'm not still a nurse and why I'm not staying up all night being a sleep scientist anymore and why I do my daytime job as a psychologist but still staying in sleep it is because I don't cope very well with all that erraticness and not and, and short sleep duration and uh, that not that predictability. Yeah. What about you? Would you, I mean, you could you go back to all your rotating shifts at the, at the moment? No. I'm not in my 20s anymore. <laughs> and, you know, as, as I got older, it got harder. You know, I think one of the things I found really hard um, it was about my first 10 years working as a specialist, I was on call and would get multiple calls per night that I'd have to be often quite complex, quite people that are quite unwell. Then I have to try and get back to sleep only for the pager to go again and then another complex person and then try and get back to sleep, then front up to work all the next day. And I did that for seven or eight years and you know, I had enough of that. Thank you very much. And it's, it seriously impacts on performance the next day. So to help us better understand the issues about sleep and performance related to shift work in healthcare workers, we've got Dr. Julia Stone from Monash University joining us. So thanks a lot for joining us, Julia, and helping us with talking about sleep in healthcare workers. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on getting your PhD. That's a great achievement. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was very excited to get that. So how did you come to looking at sleep in healthcare workers? I've always been very interested in sleep. Growing up, I quickly worked out that if I didn't get nine hours of sleep, I'd be very cranky and irritable the next day. But it wasn't really until I was working in sleep research during my honours year at the University of Melbourne that I really discovered an interest in understanding how sleep impacts on our waking function and the implications of not getting enough sleep or getting poorly timed sleep. It was really when I was looking for my PhD program that I knew I wanted to work in a really applied research context. And I heard about this thing called the CRC for Alertness, Safety and Productivity, which was in its early stages at that point. And they were funding a project looking at sleep in shift workers. And I was really drawn to that project for a couple of reasons. One, I had experienced shift work myself during uh, my honours year in the research lab, and I was very well acquainted with how physically and mentally challenging and exhausting it can be. Secondly, because healthcare is such a critical profession and it's one where the consequences of making a mistake can literally be life and death. So 
I really wanted to understand the physiology underlying the sleep in, in healthcare workers, both out of curiosity and then I suppose also partly a morbid fascination and horror really about how sleep deprived they can be due to their rosters. Yeah, absolutely. There's really good research on error rates and the sort of mistakes or surgical errors, medical errors, decision-making errors that occur in healthcare workers. What, what are some of the impacts of shift work on sleep and performance in healthcare workers? Shift work can be really disruptive to sleep and performance. Often shift workers are required to be at work when they're biologically programmed to be asleep and then to try and sleep when they're biologically programmed to be awake, which is a real challenge and it can lead to sleep loss and alertness impairment across the board. Sleep during the biological day can often be shorter, more fragmented, And then you layer that with sleep deprivation due to the long work hours and the insufficient time between shifts or even early starts cutting sleep short. And then working against the body clock can lead to that impaired cognitive performance, your poorer alertness, your increased sleepiness, which can then lead to all kinds of mistakes at work. You can have trouble staying awake and increased risks of accidents and driving on the commute home as well. So can you outline some of the common rosters and rotations that you typically see in the healthcare setting? Often you'll see a mixture of different shift types thrown in together. So there might be a mixture of day or early shifts, late shifts, long shifts, night shifts, all put together in some sort of rotating roster. So for example, you might see a series of seven day shifts, seven days off, seven night shifts, seven days off and repeat. Or you might see a series of day and evening shifts put together followed by a series of consecutive night shifts. Or you might see what's known as a slam shift, which is a late early combination where you have a late shift, say finishing at 9.30pm and then you're back on shift at 7am the next morning. But really, they're so variable between hospitals, between different roles, between people, even within people. They can change so frequently and there's lots of different combinations. What about some of the, I mean, there's so many individual differences within the shift workers. Obviously, there's different types of shift workers, you know, and not everyone responds. There's not this one size fits all solution as, as well, I find at least. And what are some of the factors contributing to this, do you believe? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's really so variable when you talk to shift workers, whether they are coping or not to shift work. Some people seem quite resilient to sleep loss um, and the other stresses around trying to manage different rosters and some people just find it completely overwhelming. One thing that we've been looking at closely from the research perspective is the variability in body clock timing that you see in shift workers. Often what we see is shift workers end up working against their internal body clock, which can lead to all kinds of problems. And we also know that the way the body clock responds to a given roster can vary quite a lot between people. So in theory, you can adapt your biological clock to night shift schedules by shifting your melatonin peak into that daytime sleep episode, similar to what would happen if you went overseas and eventually adapted to that new time zone. However, what we tend to see is this kind of adaptation is quite rare in shift workers, particularly those working in healthcare or in other professions where they have to also fit in everyday life around their work schedules. Instead, what we tend to see is firstly that they don't tend to adapt to the night schedules after multiple night shifts even. So things like 
working four night shifts in a row and still being in a state of essentially exhaustion because you're working against your body clock and not getting enough sleep. And we also see that that varies quite a lot between people. So the biological response that you see from one person on the same roster might be completely different in somebody else. One person might shift their melatonin rhythm slightly to those night shifts and some people might shift by hours. That becomes really difficult when you're trying to provide interventions or feedback or advice for shift workers because most of our interventions work best if they're timed according to that person's body clock. And if it's all over the place and you have no way of knowing where that is, then it can be really difficult. So that was some of the work that you've published earlier as part of your PhD is trying to get at that, some way of measuring where the body clock is. What sort of things did you look at and what are some of your insights around that? One way to really help shift workers, we think, is to provide recommendations based on their individual circadian timing. So for things like light therapy to work best, you want to time it according to their body clock. Or similarly, we know that shift workers are at most high risk for accidents or alertness failure during their biological night. So really being able to monitor that individual circadian timing would be hugely beneficial for things like personalised treatments or, or providing recommendations or even providing safer work rosters from an operational level. The problem at the moment is, though, to measure circadian timing, you really need to either bring someone into the lab overnight or have them collect saliva samples or urine samples in quite controlled conditions and then send those samples out for assay and analyse them. And by the time you've done all of that in a shift worker, they're on a different roster and their body clock has moved somewhere else. What we were looking at in my PhD is whether there are alternative ways to track or predict circadian timing using some mathematical models and wearable sensors. And there are a few approaches that exist uh, to do this. However, none of them had been validated in shift workers where the sleep patterns and circadian rhythms are so much more variable than in people who have the luxury of staying on a regular sleep schedule during the week. So we trialled two different approaches, both that take information that you can collect over time just using wearable sensors, so things like light exposure, skin temperature and activity. One of the approaches was a machine learning algorithm, which we trained to predict melatonin rhythms, and another one is an oscillator model of the human circadian clock which is based on the neurophysiology of of the body clock and how we know it responds to light. We did find that that model tended to be more robust for shift workers in terms of predicting their body clock timing based on their light exposure patterns. So what does it look like, Julia? You say wearables. Is Uh it a wearable that is practical or is it wearable that's practical in a clinical trial sense for a short period of time at the moment? It depends on the on the modelling approach that you take. So, for example, the first one we tried, the machine learning approach, the people who originally developed that method had people wearing all kinds of different sensors, so little skin temperature sensors all over the body. You'd have glasses kitted out with a light sensor, heart rate monitors, all sorts of different things. But we were able to distill that down to a couple of more practical sensors, so monitoring light from actographs which are like watch devices kind of like a Fitbit and a small temperature sensor which was worn on the wrist so at the moment these are all research grade equipment there's no specific commercially available sensor that that does this at the moment but it definitely could be something that could be developed quite easily same with how we're so used to wearing sensors that track our activity our steps our sleep 
it would be a similar kind of thing. This real world research, like, you know, doing your research on real life, you know, healthcare workers, give us some of the, some of the insights into some of the problems that can be encountered during this type of research. As challenging as it can be, I do think it's important to state at the beginning that real world research is really so important. It's from a research perspective, in a lot of ways, a lot easier to do things in the lab where everything's perfect and controlled and you can really get at what the physiology and mechanisms are. But I do think that it's really valuable to look at how we can apply things in in field settings. That said, it can be very challenging. We were very lucky that we had a hospital that was very on board with helping us um, conduct the research. But shift workers at the end of the day are very busy and they're very tired and we were asking a lot of them. For some reason, they didn't want to collect urine samples for days at a time and come in and do tests. We did have some some cases of life simply getting in the way. So, for example, one monitoring device was quite literally chewed up by a participant's dog. We had another who had an accident who then had a broken arm and wasn't at work on the roster we needed. Probably one of the biggest challenges which I imagine is a huge challenge for shift workers as well, is that their rosters could change at a moment's notice. We might have their rosters that were planned for a month and then the day of testing they swapped with someone else or had to do a double shift or something like that. It's just the rosters are just so variable. It can also be very challenging to interpret sleep diaries from shift workers because they quite literally sleep at any time of day. I would caution anyone trying to collect sleep diary information in shift workers to get a really good idea of what the date is that they're talking about. Based on what you learnt in that study and the modelling data that you showed, what have you moved on to working on now? One of the main findings from testing these modelling approaches in shift workers was that while they are really quite good at predicting the group average level performance, so say if you had a group of workers, you could predict somewhere in the middle they all come out at this particular phase but they aren't particularly good at predicting the individual level phase or individual level circadian timing. Something that I'm very interested in working on now is trying to develop ways to individualise the models to better track at the individual level someone's circadian timing and then subsequently their performance and their sleep timing. Do you, do you think that there'd be data or models available for people doing the rosters, let alone the workers themselves, but predicting the best roster for some people based on their circadian phase or based on their, just, just based on their individual preferences, I guess, because it doesn't really work like that in the real world, does it? I think that the shifts are based on a whole lot of other stuff but rather than their biology. I think it's really a lot of practical reasons and a lot of um, things that need to happen in the routines of the hospital that haven't been challenged for a long time. So do you think that you're, do you have hope for, yeah, what kind of changes do you think we could see practically in your lifetime <laughs> or way before, you know, in the next five years, for instance, like five, ten years? What kind of things could we see that could really be useful? I would really hope that we can start seeing some changes in the rostering and the way that rosters are developed in, to be informed a little bit more around what we know from a safety perspective as well as from a biological perspective on the kinds of rosters people should be doing. There is work being done to develop tools that can help develop rostering systems and scheduling systems that take into account rules around how many night shifts should you allow for one person, how long do you need between shifts so that someone has enough time to go home and to wind down and to get to sleep. 
before getting up and starting all over again, as well as trying to build in some of those predictions around circadian timing. So I am hopeful that those will start to be implemented. But of course, it is one of many competing demands faced by people trying to develop these rosters. So I hope that we can really call their attention to it and, and demonstrate the improvements from a at the bottom line, but also from a health and wellbeing point of view. Thanks very much for those insights, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, it's been fun. So Maura, what did you make of Julia's responses and the information that she gave us? Oh, it's fantastic. It's, I'm very interested in the yeah, the work that she's doing with her group. I think there's such a, there's so much potential. There's so many things we're going to know uh, that will help really help healthcare workers and their families like coping much better with shift work and the individualization of it. I think is what I was particularly interested in. What about you? Yeah, that's an important thing for me because it does reinforce that it's just not as simple as right. Everyone do this, follow this protocol. Unfortunately, that means, you know, we can't present a finished product of right. This is what we should do to fix fatigue and issues from shift work in all healthcare workers moving forward. But with some of that information on individualisation that's being worked on at the moment, I think that's where we'll be just a few more years down the track. I did love the term slam shift. I reckon you would have done a few of those in your day. Oh, yeah. I didn't, we didn't call them that, but gee, you felt slammed. <laughs> so if people are looking for more information on the this topic, uh, I've put links to Julia's papers and some other papers from the Alertness CRC on this topic in the show notes. There's a great fact sheet from the Sleep Health Foundation about shift work and some blog posts on Sleep Hub. So what's a clinical tip for people working with healthcare workers? I think something to keep in mind when working with healthcare workers is really taking a personalised approach and thinking about what their upcoming roster is as much as possible and working on a plan with them to help manage when they're going to sleep, when they're going to seek or avoid light and how they're going to fit everything else that they need to fit into their lives in, as well as thinking about things like planning sleep in anticipation of of the roster. So things like if you've got a night shift coming up in a couple of days, starting to sleep later and having a nap before you go in. Okay, Dave, we've come to the pick of the month. What's caught your eye this month? Keeping with podcasts as a pick. So Narcolepsy 360 podcast is a podcast series And they've produced a special series of interviews for the pandemic. So people with narcolepsy and uh, sleepiness and how to sort of manage during the pandemic. There's a really nice episode with Dr. Jason Ong. He's been on our podcast and we've spoken about before uh, from Northwestern in Chicago, who's done some really nice work on some of the non-drug strategies for helping to manage symptoms uh, of narcolepsy and sleepiness. And also we've collaborated with him on some of the mindfulness work in insomnia and other sleep disorders. So yeah, check that out. Oh, great. What about for you, Moira? Uh, yeah, well, that sounds good. Um, my pick of the month has been around for a little while and I just keep forgetting to draw everyone's attention to it. But So this is the month to promote it. It's, it's a really neat little video. It's on um, Vimeo. It's on YouTube and I'll just put the link to it. And it's done by um, Hayley Meeklin, who's doing her PhD at the moment uh, at Monash University. She, watched, she started it at RMIT. And last year she got this fantastic, a small amount of money, a small grant, to put together a short little video which outlines the two process model of sleep, like process S and process C. And it's just been a re- it's just a really handy video. It's very neatly done and it's come up really nicely. So I'm going to put the link to that because it's freely available for everyone to use. 
I use it all the time the last six months or so in any education I'm doing, the webinars I do, because it's sometimes it's a bit, you know, it's hard talking about the process S and process C, particularly to a group who, who a non-sleep group, who don't really know anything about those two processes. So it's, um, yeah, I highly recommend that. Look out for our next episode where we'll talk about use of medications during pregnancy, particularly in women uh, with narcolepsy, because that's something that I get asked a fair bit about in my clinical practice, and there's really not good resources out there. So I wanted to develop a resource uh, for that. And of course, Moira will be looking out for you on some of the Australasian Sleep Association's webinars and the series on sleep that they're running. Yeah, fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. And we're also going to try and get some Sleep Health Foundation webinars going as well. But they'd probably be more community-facing, like getting them out into schools and corporations and organisations. But that's something, I'll, I'll, when that happens, I'll certainly be promoting that as well and ways in which you can book one in for your organisation. So thanks very much for listening to the podcast. And if you've got suggestions for episodes, uh, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And don't forget, if you like the podcast, to tell your friends and colleagues. You can also write a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe via any podcast streaming service or app. Catch you on Twitter. (laughs) Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.